That's why Corvette's been using push rod for so long because my, they can fit it so my low six point eight is so slimming. <laughs> Did these push rods make me? Look I'm a fat? geek. What can I say? <laughs> we got a half hour. Can we do this? <laughs> yep. Do my push Let's rods go. make me look thinner? Welcome to Driven Radio Show, your home for car talk covering the latest news to the greatest views on the biggest names in performance, sports, and just plain cool driving machines. Your hosts are freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield, plus videographer and host of the YouTube channel Craving Cars, Corey Pratt, and 35-year radio veteran, book publisher, and vehicular village idiot, Mark Catfish Groves. Let's rev up the conversation time for driven radio show welcome to driven radio your weekly automotive shindig i am brett hatfield here with our intrepid engineer and co-host senior catfish groves yola the evil genius of craving cars on youtube mr Corey pratt <laughs> and our once and again co-host the esteemed mr Vern Estes of you Vernon all Estes thought you were getting rid of me hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, you can hope all day on one hand you're like friendship herpes every oh, once in a while right. you just suddenly show up <laughs> who knew <laughs> He Look, fl- I broke out in friendship. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> is that what they're calling that? He flares up and you got to deal with it. And then, there right. he is. <laughs> we are coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in beautiful Overland Park, Kansas. If you like what you're hearing, tell your friends, or better yet, go on Apple Music. Leave us a five-star review. Please. Please. If there's something you'd like to hear more of, please tell us. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Driven Radio Show. And listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. And there's a good chance if you stick your ear up to your neighbor's wall, you're going to hear us coming through. (laughs) Doing our best. There you go. (laughs) If there is something you would like to hear more of, or better yet, somebody you think we should be talking to, let us know. Contact us at my email, brett at readthedriven.com. We'd love to hear from you. Gentlemen. Yes. What have you been doing in cars this week, Mark? You cannot stick Craigers on a new computer. That's BS. You watch me. I will okay. find a way. Okay, Let's maybe maybe you can. Maybe I can. But you can't drive it around the block. You know, it's funny you even say that because I, I had a little bit of a, I, I was making fun of myself to myself uh, earlier today and i was like you know what this whole car search that turned to total crap on me i should just buy a set of craigers because i saw one on facebook i yeah. was looking for a desk and craigers popped up and i'm like you know me too well facebook <laughs> but I, I thought i had to buy a set of craigers and then figure out the car around it well there you go start with I the have, wheels That's i have what... honest to god thought about putting a set of craigers on vlad <laughs> Except oh, that would save be for so the fact sexy. that the thing ha- already has three grand worth of wheels on it. It ain't the money. It's the respect. It's the respect. <laughs> it's the respect. Yeah, right. Although a uh, set of Craigers and some radials on the Corvette would make it right a hell of a lot nicer than five-inch wide bias plies. Well, that's what I had planned on doing on that one piece of crap that I almost bought. Which one yeah. would that be? That was the 55 Plymouth <laughs> I went to look for. Could you and... narrow it down for me, please? <laughs> oh, oh. There's a fleet. Which state oh, are we referring listen, to? It took me a second. That's that's embarrassing. i got to work it, on it. it i got to get my game. Is it the one you went and looked at without me or the one that you looked at with me and tried to kill me? <laughs> well, you know, six of one, half dozen. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I actually, I, I've been going through all this stuff that was underneath the stairs. You know, when you you're, you hit a point in your life and you're like, why have I got all this yeah, crap? I've, I've seen a bunch of the stuff that you posted on Facebook 
and I'm just <laughs> glad I wasn't there with you. Oh, dude, I it was it was quite the the trip back in time. And one of the things I discovered was a bag that had something on the front of it, some old <laughs> wait, brochure. And wait, I'm wait. like, hold Stop. on, just no. Nope. Yeah, you had I'm, me a bag. <laughs> <laughs> I found a baggie, um, and there was this powder. It was just dust. The oh, oh, uh, it had an old brochure on it. I thought, there's why why did my mom save this for me? And then. With the I, I got to digging in it. It's all the stuff from my very first car, from my very first 1955 Plymouth. Oh no, it's the That's original so cool. uh, owner's uh, um, manual. Yeah, it it, it had all oh. the stuff. The the original um, uh, title. Uh, from 1955. Wow, it had the cost. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. And it had a letter from the guy who uh, sold it to my dad saying, hey, that, that was my dad's car. I hope your son really takes care of it. I am such an asshole. Again, you can hope all day on one hand. <laughs> but then I found also the uh, notes from my mom because my mom took notes on everything. She had an accountant's heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote down the name of the person that sold it to. So I put that on Facebook and said, hey, anybody from uh, Branson Hollister know this person's name, blah, blah, blah. And bam, tw- within 20 minutes, uh, high school you know, acquaintance friend. And, and thank you so much, I Jeff Michelle. I know a drunk driver was killed he, in that car. He put, hey, I think it's this person. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I called. It was. I talked to the guy who bought my wow. car. And took the orange crate and painted it uh, maroon and redid the interior and fancied it up. Left the motor in it because we'd had the motor just rebuilt, you young jackass. <laughs> uh, before I let the rust and everything ruin it. Uh, and he he drove it for 10 years. No oh, kidding. Wow. Okay. And then he sold it to some girlfriend whose name he can't remember because he's 75. Son of a bitch. And so <laughs> I used to date her. Yeah. She <laughs> was a great ride too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that's where the trail ends for now. And that's all I'm doing with cars because I've, I've given up. But so I, all you folks out there, if anybody's seen a maroon 55 Plymouth with a in six southern Missouri, in Southern Missouri, yeah, in Southern Missouri or Arkansas or thereabouts, probably belongs to a preacher now. Hopefully, I'm not saying, hopefully it doesn't belong to a <laughs> Shut preacher. Up. Shut up! It probably does. <laughs> uh, if you've seen it out there, uh, go break into it and see if it belongs to Mark, please. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Corey? What have you been doing? Well, you know, obviously, uh, uh, with with the whole portion, I've been driving a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, just just weather's just been bringing really it back from nice. Seattle, oh, going God, on the rally, yeah. doing all kinds of stuff. Well, I decided apparently I didn't drive it enough, so I decided to put another fifteen, seventeen hundred miles on it this last <laughs> weekend, driving to go? Chicago. Jeebus Chrysler, why? Just to go? The hell's in Chicago? Uh, there's a lake next to it. Oh well, uh, if, you, then if you go to Chicago, <laughs> you can vote four or five times while you're there. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> So yeah, I just I took off. I I I uh, picked up the wife uh, under under one arm and I threw her in the Porsche and then we took off. I bet she was thrilled. And uh, we left like a Friday night. Got there kind of late. Had a place to stay that wasn't going to cost us anything. So that worked out. Wow. And then uh, we hung out downtown Chicago on Saturday. (laughs) And drove back and forth. I don't know how many times. You know, anywhere you go in Chicago, I don't care if you like a suburb. It's like, hey, let's go into the downtown. Well, it's going to be an hour drive. Yeah. Really? So it's an hour drive. Oh, let's go over here. Okay, we'll go back. Hey, we should go pick up this. Where's that? Oh, it's downtown. It's another hour drive. So we. With this, you think you just stay downtown? Seventeen, more miles. I think we put on it now. So uh, <laughs> nearly seven thousand miles I put on it in a month. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. So. <laughs> 
Uh-huh. There you go. All right, that's uh, I apparently had, I didn't put it driving enough. He decided to and kick that depreciation meter good. into overdrive. <laughs> I just needed more oil changes. Well, Mister Vern, we haven't seen you in quite some while. I uh, guess so. What have you been doing? Anything interesting in your car world? Just trying to sell cars, man. Still the owner of the world's lowest volume car dealer. And getting lower volume by the month, it seems. All right. Before you know, you'd be down to a quarter of a car. All the way down to two cars in inventory. Yeah, but what are the cars? I mean, come on. It's not exactly, you know, a Yugo. You're not selling a Kia Optima. Well, yeah. He's not moving Camrys. One's a 67 GT500, and the other's a old Bronco. So the Bronco's kind of for sale, kind of not for sale. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I want to do with it yet. 67 GT500. Like yeah, all yeah. original paint. I, I'm, Oh, oh wow! Owned by the same guy from 1968 to 19 or 2019. Holy! Yeah, first owner had it for six months. Traded it in. This guy bought it and uh, drove it. He was a high school chemistry teacher. Drove it to school every day. Yes, he was. Wow. 100, 120,000 miles. All original paint interior. <laughs> what was his name? Everything. Again, I say. I don't know. Have you seen that movie Breaking Bad? I don't know. <laughs> no, his brakes were good. <laughs> Jesus. Nice. Well, uh, Rhonda and I drove Vlad around a little bit, and then we worked on cleaning and polishing everything because that's what I do. Well, that's what Vlad does, man. Vlad is a Christmas ornament that moves fast. That's how you can tell you're a Harley owner. And and attracts dust. Uh, Rode Harleys, did all that good stuff. And uh, so you did it all. While we have everybody's rapt attention, I'm looking into doing a charity rally, car show, motorcycle shows trying to raise some money for a friend of mine who has ALS. Ah. And it's a great cause, and this is a great guy. Uh, Most people, when they're diagnosed with ALS, they get three or four years, and then they're gone. And my friend has been really lucky in that he's gotten 15 years. However, yeah. yeah. It's gotten hard. Yeah, however, as he described it, you slowly but surely become a prisoner inside your own body. Mm. And now he is... Uh, he's in a wheelchair and we're trying to get money together to do modifications to his house and help him out. And so I'm trying to gauge the interest from everybody. Uh, you want to do a rally here in the next few months, want to do a car show. I know we're heading into winter and it's kind of bad timing, but we will come out of that in March and April. Everybody's going to be dying to do something and also car rallies, as long as there's no snow on the ground and it's not raining buckets, we can go. So oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, looking at doing that, we're going to be contacting our buddy Jim from Rally America. I think that uh, we can put something together. Surely we've got the contacts and I'd love to be able to do something to raise money for my friend. So. Yeah, obviously we could definitely do something, uh, I, I would imagine. And, and Craven Cars, of course, has got your back, too. So I mean, Fantastic. Hey. By the way, uh, good videos out this week. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, in, the, in the news this week, Ford might have a bigger engine in the works for F-150s and Mustangs. You won't be able to get an electric Super Duty pickup anytime soon. Ferrari can't see going full EV, but if you got deep pockets, you can have a battery-powered Cobra. Our special guest this week is automotive legend Peter Brock. Mr. Brock will be here to tell us about working with automotive titans, designing iconic sports cars while still a teenager, running a racing team, building hang gliders, and so much more. There's no way we get through everything that Pete has to to discuss. Uh, How do you condense a legend's life down to just one interview? We'll never get it done, but we're going to take a stab at it. Got a lot of news to cover this week, so let's get to it.
From Source, the uh, the drive, 6.8 liter Windsor Pushrod V8 is coming to the 2022 Ford Mustang and F-150. Oh, bigger Dude, engine. Oh, oh. Windsur. The, the yeah, Windsor power. is back. Yeah, More the power. Back. Yeah, that's well, awesome. I, it would be cooler if it was a Cleveland, but you know what? I'll take it. Well, you know. I'll take it. Do you think Ford won't put a supercharger on this ever? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Ford recently came back to building Cammon Block V8s with its 7.3 liter Godzilla truck engine. Now it appears Godzilla! The brand is strengthening its commitment to big V8s in another way. 6.8 liter pushrod power will be returning to Ford's vehicles, particularly the 20, uh, 2022 F-150 and the Mustang. This is based on a quote from Canadian Auto Union's National President Jerry Diaz. There's a sharp turn from the brand's EcoBoost strategy. And you know? thank God. Yes, yes, this is the kind that. of stuff that, that it's just better in a V8 form. Now Sorry, you'll be burning he 85 I, <laughs> I don't even care if this is the last hurrah. I'm yeah, thankful. No kidding. Oh, yeah, no doubt, considering the way the future is looking. It's been proven that the 7.3 liter can fit in classic and modern Mustangs, as it is. Uh, it's 4.5 inches narrow, narrower than a Coyote 5.0 liter. No and kidding. thank you, Corey, for explaining to me why, because I'm a dumbass, and You're I didn't really get not. that. You know, you know what makes a rocket science a rocket science? Because they studied rocket science. Good yeah. point. So what is it? Why is it thinner? Well, I mean, the Coyote is a dual Diet. overhead cam engine. So you've got two cams <laughs> that sits over, uh, you know, the pistons. Of course, it's in, in, in that V formation. So it makes the top of that engine so much more wider, whereas opposed to pushrod has one big cam on the bottom. Hey, makes Vern, a lower it, center of is gravity. Is like Grand Tour and Top and Gear where the other two guys tune out when James well, Mayo is explaining yeah. something? Yeah, I, I, I got nothing. I don't know what Ford's really thinking with this, but I, I like it. That's all <laughs> it's, yeah, and it's interesting because they've always kind of been on, on top of changing things. They didn't go with an old pushrod kind of design. They went with dual overhead cam. They did all that stuff. And smaller leaders, and now they're back to a big, fat Are you kidding? They learned a valuable lesson rods. when they made Mustangs look like Mustangs again. Pistons and all the, the size of coffee cans. God, yes! <laughs> now, this can make more power than, than it's currently rated with figures of 430 horsepower and 475 uh, pound-feet of torque. Wouldn't be surprising to see the 6.8 liter matcher exceed that of the 2021 F-150 and Mustang's V8 in their own respective more applications. Power. And likewise, the Windsor plant already builds the 7.3 liter, so sharing parts between assembly lines seems all the more likely. Hot diggity dog. That's actually, I'm sorry, it's pretty cool, but I... Uh, are they still going to have a coyote like as an option? You think? Yeah, oh, that was, sure. That's oh, my yeah. question. Yeah. More yeah. choices. More choices. That'll Don't be, have enough choices. Do you need to be more? And, confused? and right now, it's what 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 four sixties? What the uh, what the twenty twenty uh, well, Mustang yeah, does with if the coyote? It's a, if it's a pushrod V eight too, then it's probably not going to rev as high. So no, it seems like, like, like kind of an odd. You don't have to if you're perfect. Yeah. Is it only going to be supercharged? That's Big the question. Torque. <laughs> torque. I got lots of, I'm a torquey. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it'll just make the Coyote be the 302 of uh, millennials uh, age. So. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah we're go. good with that. Yep. Also, from uh, Muscle Cars and Trucks, the Ford Super Duty won't go electric anytime soon. <laughs> that's right, by God. <laughs> good. Uh, uh, Ford, General Motors, and FCA are all officially in the process of building electric trucks as our Tesla, Rivian, Nikola, you know, the, the Badger. Badgers? Badgers? We, we don't, don't need no stinking badgers. badgers. We've been waiting all night to do that. Uh, <laughs> and Lordstown and Bollinger, according to a new report from the Detroit Free Press, Ford will not be electrifying its Super Duty lineup anytime soon, which kind of makes sense because the Super Duties have to go far and, and pull horses. Yeah, no kidding. And, and cars and car And large-ass bales of hay. And snow plows. And it came like from that. Kumar Golatra. And forgive me, Kumar. If go I'm go ahead. Give Adam another <laughs> shot. Get, you do it. Kumar, Kumar Galhatra. 
Yeah, whatever. Yep. Sounds good I'm to me. In. Ford's president of America's and International Markets Group. Uh, oh, my God. You, uh, Kumar. Uh, Kumar. Kumar said <laughs> that the company has no plans to build heavy-duty electric vehicles at this moment. I suck. Uh, though he did not state the company won't pursue this in the future. So it seems level interest yeah, it, in an electric Ford Super Duty is not exactly high. I like that Ford snatched him up from White Castle. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, dear. Really? Oh, um, boy. So... Uh, you know, I, I, I am kind of glad that they're sticking with it. We'll, we'll just see how long that lasts. How long can you ride that pony? Well, uh, you, a long, long time. You stick a big diesel in it and just go. Well, just like what Brett said, I mean, you got to be able to travel distances. And the more, and obviously, I think they're, they're meant to pull. So the more you pull, the more juice it's going to use, which means you're not going to get nothing out of your Yeah, EV. but we got electric diesels out there right now. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, electric diesels, listen to me. Electric big rigs. Um, yeah, but not really, though. Mm. I mean, not really in full function. Like, I mean, yes, the idea is there, and they're making, but they're not really crossing well, it, the country that, by any means. Aren't they? No. I thought that's what they had uh, going with UPS and Amazon's delivery vehicles, and they ordered a cabillion from listen, Tesla. And, when one delivers a package to my house. Yeah, yeah. Then, then we'll, I gotcha. we'll see what's going on. All right, fair enough. Start dicking around. <laughs> well, from uh, Motor Authority. The Ferrari CEO doesn't see the brand ever having full EV lineup. I love the brass this guy's got. <laughs> I love it. While Ferrari is committed to launching a battery electric model sometime after 2025, I like how they're like taking forever for them. Like, mm, well, hey, we're in no rush here. We're going to drag our it's, feet It's a normal Italian thing. Uh, just wait around and we'll come up with something eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't expect the automaker to go down full EV, perhaps uh, even in the decades ahead. So that's kind of cool. I find that hard to believe. It's Ferrari. You know, I the, don't. The one manufacturer that could tell the world to go screw is Ferrari. It, yeah, it's I, all I would, about the name brand. I would almost think they would stop altogether before they no. went a full EV. Just, just like Enzo, he was the one guy who could tell everybody, <laughs> nah, not going to do it. Yep. Uh, according to Ferrari CEO, uh, Lewis. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Lewis, who said that uh, he didn't <laughs> see the automaker you ever coward. have an I bumbled through that guy's name, and he's going to sue me. Well, he you saw you. Coward. He heard you butcher it. He's not doing the same thing. Um, uh, they basically, they really don't see them ever going 100% in the lifetime, even reaching 50%. Wow. Oh, wow. Says Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So last year, um, battery Camilleri. technology isn't at the point suitable for Ferrari, uh, which doesn't surprise me. Which is why the automaker doesn't plan to have an EV uh, prior to 2025. Do you think they really want to do that when you've got all these EV cars coming out with like ungodly torque and huge horsepower? Yeah, but remember, part of the allure of a Ferrari is the sound of the engine. Yes, so right. it's understandable that they don't want to give that up. Yeah, if up. you want something fast, you buy a Porsche or a McLaren. Everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it to sound good, you buy a Ferrari. Go ahead. Break your, hand, break your arm, pat yourself Ferrari. on the back. I'll take the next story. Uh, there you go. Well, how about this, though? Uh, anybody who's going to be buying a Ferrari probably doesn't give a crap about whether it's an EV. Yeah, I'm guessing not. Uh, we will always have gasoline. Uh, they'll have two Taycans. Yeah, if they, have, if, they, if they have something that needs to like justify their you know economy or the, the, the environment, then guess what? They'll have that, and then they'll still have their Ferrari. Or, or put differently, if you're looking to a Ferrari for an economy car, you got your head in the wrong place. I suspect Dubai will always have... Gasoline-powered vehicles. Yeah, well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Gas, and they can afford them. Well, Gas Ferrari, is cheaper than water. Ferrari though. is focusing a little bit more on plug-in hybrids than they are full electrics. Uh, Ferrari needs to reduce emissions to its fleet to zero due to regulations, because now all call, call, uh, car makers have to do crap like that. Um, I mean, they, they could rely on alternate fuels. They could do hydrogen fuel cell. 
That, that's an option. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, but where's going to be the whiny engine sound? Remember, that's what's important. Is that what you just told me? I didn't say all of them. I'm just saying to, to reduce their you know, well, emissions and stuff. Whatever. But anyways, not- despite not having EV, uh, business is still booming for Ferrari. They're selling cars, and who cares because they're pretty cool. Hey, like Matt, I'm a Porsche yeah. guy. like Matt Ferris said to me, rich people are still rich and will continue to be rich there you and go. do rich people things. So there you Which go. Which is like, you know, Ferraris and stuff. And uh, blah, blah, blah. From Roden Track, AC, the original Cobra body manufacturer, is building a 617-horsepower electric Cobra Le Mans tribute car. There we go. Yuck. Oh, my oh. goodness. Just when you think we're not talking about EVs anymore, we we're managed talking to about offend EVs. him. I'm happy now. <laughs> Just into Dazani now making water that's not wet. <laughs> that's called dirt. <laughs> AC, the company behind the iconic Ace that gave birth to the original Cobra, is launching a new electric car. The company announced an EV version of the iconic Cobra Le Mans cars that ran the 24-hour race in the 60s. AC plans to build 12 electric Cobras, each a recreation of one of the two AC cars prepped for the Le Mans race. Six will be modeled after the green number 39 PH car, and six will look like the red 645 CGT car. Each will have an electric powertrain producing 617 horsepower and 738 with a range of 120 miles zero to 60 should take 4.2 seconds now for all of you who know what the original ac cobras were and how light they were they're probably looking at that going it should be a lot faster but keep in mind batteries are heavy yeah that's slower yeah. than an original 427 cobra. yeah of course but and, and that might be a modest but it's number. electric and, and that's got a truck zing. motor and it sounds good <laughs> And, and it good. smells good. And I bet it can and go. And it makes you feel like a His man. Boy Elroy is and I bet it yeah. can go more than 120 miles. Oh, His gosh, boy Elroy. just terrible. Uh, yeah, gasoline Cobra couldn't go more. Than <laughs> well, <laughs> but it can refuel within yeah. a minute, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, these new cars will join the Cobra Series One electric car the company is already building. Oh, here's the here's the stickler, kids. Oh, AC oh. has produced the electric Cobra Le Mans at about 775 thousand dollars at current exchange rates so which would you rather do pay seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollars for an electric cobra or light seven hundred and seventy five thousand dollars on fire (laughs) it makes such a pretty angry it makes such a pretty light well how much how much is one that's not electric Oh, not I mean, all... anything from $30,000 to, I mean, a real one can be a million five. I'll take or, that. Yeah. yeah, well, that's enough. I mean, real ones can be $10 million if you want them to be, but yeah. like... Okay, you know, well, this debate's going to have to lay where it is, kids. <laughs> Our special guest this week is legendary designer, author, racer, and all-around amazing guy, Peter Brock. Pete will be here to tell us about working with automotive titans, designing iconic sports cars while he was still a teenager, running a racing team, building hang gliders, and so much more coming up next on Driven Radio. Welcome back to Driven Radio, the sweetest smelling podcast on the web. Our special guest this week is legendary designer, author, racer, and all-around amazing car guy, Peter Brock. 
Pete has worked with the titans of the automotive world, designed legendary sports cars, owned his own design firm and racing team, authored numerous books, worked as a photojournalist, and continues to be a pillar of everything that makes the car world great. Pete, welcome to Driven Radio. Hey, it's just great to be here. Uh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be on the show, and uh, great to have some good people that understand the car business to talk to, because that's always a challenge to the you know, sit down with people who don't really understand this business, but uh, you've all got a pretty good handle on it, so uh, we can uh, talk among friends. Uh, and we're thrilled to have you. We really are. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a long time. Uh, you caught the car and racing bugs really early. Uh, can you tell us what drove this? Well, the thing is, I I had a, uh, a next-door neighbor uh my folks were divorced, and uh, you know I was about 11 years old and stuff. And a guy moved in next door who had an MGTC, and this is you know clear back in about 1949-1950, and nobody had ever really seen sports cars. And uh, I just fell in love with that uh, with that car, and then uh, I found out that uh, you know he was servicing it at a shop down in, in town. And uh, so I'd just go over there after school or ride my bike over just to look at the cars and stuff. And then, you know, pretty soon they just said, you know, if you're going to stand around, why don't you sweep the floor? So uh, I started doing that and uh, wiping off tools and, and just hanging out with a bunch of guys. They were all in their mid, you know, early 20s and stuff. And then they were racing the cars as well. So then pretty soon I started going to racing with them. And I just, that's been my life ever since. I understand you got a hell of a ride in your neighbor's car. Absolutely. Well, the guy actually with a great ride was a guy named Nato Borschel. He was the first guy that I'd ever seen done fabrication work. You know, uh, if you've never seen a car put together and, you know, you see a guy that actually build the car, start out, you know, with a bunch of tubing on the floor and the sheets of aluminum and ha hammering it all together and stuff. And it was really an education. Uh, and uh, he was a Frenchman and uh, sort of standoffish and had a rope on front of his shop in there. And, and I just go there and stand by the shop and, and watch him for, you know, 20, 30 minutes at a time and keep coming back. And, you know, over the months I saw this car built and it was great. So, you know, one Saturday afternoon, he just he pointed at me and he came over and pointed at the seats that get in, you know, and, and, uh, we went for a ride and this, I mean, this is a full on, you know, blown MGTC special with a supercharger on it and straight pipes. And, uh, in those days you could go rip roaring around Marin County. Nobody ever bothered you, you know, up through Mount Camel Pass. And it was just absolutely the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. So this guy made a hand built MGTC. Yeah, it was all uh, hand-built TC. Uh, you know, we used to call them specials in those days. And my next-door neighbor had a regular TC, which he raced, and I'd go to the races with him. But the guy, Nato Borgelt, who had the little shop down there where I used to go after school and work, was the guy that actually built the special. So I was surrounded by guys that were racing. I mean, there were two or three guys in the shop that were racing their MGs, and the guy, Fritz Warren, that moved in next door to me was a, guy that I started going to the races with. And uh, so in those days, nobody had trailers. So on a race weekend, you know, like Thursday, everybody quit work. And, you know, there might be eight or nine cars all in a line heading out for some 
remote spot in California, an airport, or didn't have any real racetracks at all in, the, in those days. So they raced mostly in airports or hill climbs. And, uh, you know, they'd just go rat racing up the road and stuff, and it was just a, a lot of fun. Well, these vehicles, I'm looking at pictures of them, and they're just gorgeous. They're little bitty things. Looks like Terry Thomas should be in one with his goggles on and his his uh, big old scarf flying in back of him. What a gorgeous vehicle. And uh, the tires, they're almost like motorcycle tires. And these are the things that you were going on deathly speeds with. I, I just, <laughs> I'm amazed and honored. <laughs> well, that was the thing, you know, because there was so little traction on those little skinny tires in those days that the... Uh, cars really drifted and uh, you steered them with a throttle and that was the first time that i really you know understood that you could drive with a throttle as well going through a big big sweeper uh and the and the back end would get out you know and you're pointed you know all the way across the, the road and going a three quarters of a, a angle all the way through this long sweeper uh you know with a car under control and steering it with a throttle it's it's pretty exciting and uh, I think that's one of the things that I miss sort of about racing today. It's obviously a lot faster with the big, fatter tires and stuff. But the whole skill in those days of, of driving with the throttle, with the minimum amount of traction, made racing so much more interesting. And you could actually see the guy in the car driving the car and, and uh, understand the whole dynamics of what was going on. So after all of this, what did you get for your first car? My first car uh, was an MGTC, because that's all it really had in those days. And uh, there, I, about the time I was about 14, I'd been, you know, working in the shop. There, for, there was like a one with a blown engine in the back of the shop. And I managed to, you know, put together enough money in during that period of time and bought that car. And, of course, the guys in the shop helped me put it all back together again. And uh, so my first car was a TC, and that gave me such a great, uh, sense of design because it was a very classic design. You know, I was really sort of disappointed when the TD came out because it was all kind of soft and not didn't have the elegant crisp lines that the TC had on it. Uh, but I soon learned that, you know, the suspension was better, the tires were better, the brakes were better, or whatever. So I, I learned the engineering side as well as the aesthetic side at the same time and the fabrication, everything that was going on with it. So I had a, a pretty rounded education, you know, from a very young age of what was going on and how to build stuff and what was good and what wasn't and, and what it took to, you know, build a good car. Within just a couple of years, you wound up at the Art Center School. Uh, were you an artist? And how did you get in? Well, the thing is that I'd, uh, you know, I'd gone to Stanford my first year and uh, I was doing all right there, but I, you know, I just... I didn't find anything that I really liked. And, and the thing that I really found that really pissed me off is that um, when you go in to take a test, you were competing against all these guys that had already pledged to a, a fraternity or something. And if you go into the fraternity, they have file cabinets there with all the tests. So those guys had a complete <laughs> test with all the answers and everything. And, you know, you could score 95 on your test, and on a bell curve, you'd get a C minus or something. And, you know, that sort of just really pissed me off, and I didn't want to do that. I'd heard about the school in Southern California that, uh, that taught you how to design cars and stuff, so I just drove down there on Easter vacation 
and uh, and you know walked in the school through the back end with a class walking in there and just sat wrapped in an hour of listening to what was going on and the instructor showing these guys how to, to draw cars and talking about design and history and the whole thing and I I knew right there that was something that I really wanted to you know and get involved in so I just you know I walked up to the front office and said you know where do I sign and they said well you know this is a school for this is a school for professionals after you've been in the in the business for a while you come back here and, and polish your skills and it was giving me this whole thing about you know how good they were and I said yeah 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 I, I understand all that but where do I sign I just want to go to school <laughs> and they said, well, of course, you'll have to have a portfolio and bring that in, and we'll uh, judge whether you can come in or not. And I said, there was a big silence. I said, you know, what's a portfolio? I'd had absolutely <laughs> no no background in art. Had nothing, I mean, I'm totally green. And I just said, what, you know, what, what do you mean? What's a portfolio? And they said, well, it's a, a, you know, you bring in a, all of examples of your best work. And I said, well, okay. So I went out in the, in the parking lot and grabbed my three-ring binder, you know, with all the little blue lines in it, and sat down there and drew cars like I used to do in study hall. And then just before closing time, went back up and laid them on there and said, here's my portfolio. <laughs> and, awesome. and I mean, the, the registration lady just, you know, she just smiled at me and she says, you really want to go here, don't you? <laughs> and I said, absolutely. So I just, you know, it's probably the end of the month and they needed a check and stuff. So uh, <laughs> they said, look, it, we'll give you, you know, we'll give you three months to figure out if you can do it. And uh, so I talked my way in there. And I mean, the requirements to get into that school are just absolutely bananas. I mean, you've got to have, you know, several years of college and business. And and I mean, I walked in there with knowing nothing. And uh Fortunately, we had some really, really top instructors, guys that were pros out of Detroit, and uh, they just, you know, they they were so good and so helpful. And then I had the advantage of working, of course, with all the other students, and these guys were all pros as well, and they were all helpful. So, uh, you know, I I twigged on pretty quick on how stuff were going. So I made it about all oh, through my fifth semester there, and. Uh, and I'd gone down there, and of course, my, my mom had paid my tuition at Stanford and that stuff. Um, and she was really against my, you know, leaving college and, you know, <laughs> normal education. So she finally just wrote me a letter and said, hey, you know, I'm not going to support this anymore. You're on your own. Do whatever you want to do. And uh, so that was it. I was I was out of money at that time. And uh Luckily, I'd gotten to know uh, Chuck Jordan, who later became the vice president of design at General Motors. But at that time, he was a, a studio head and a designer and a headhunter. And he'd come out and he'd look to the guys in the eighth semester who were going to school there to see who he was going to hire to go back to GM. And I told him, you know, I'd gotten to know him over a couple of semesters every time he came out and told him of my interest in it, and, and he looked at my work and, and knew my enthusiasm and passion for it. So I, I, I called him back at GM and said, hey, Chuck, you know, I said, uh, I'm out of bucks, and I don't have a place to go or whatever. I said, I'm going to be doing 
flipping burgers down to McDonald's unless you can get me a job. And uh, he said, I'll have an air- airplane ticket for you tomorrow. And I flew back and hired in and started working for, for GM. It was the best education I ever had. You were the youngest designer GM had ever hired. And you worked with yeah. some automotive titans while you were there and on some historic and iconic projects. Uh, can you discuss your time at GM? And at the time, did you realize what you were a part of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, a GM was the, I mean, it was like the very best place in the world you could be. I would have worked there for nothing. It was, uh, it was so interesting because, uh, you know, the, <laughs> United Auto Workers, the union, they uh, they unionize everything in Detroit, and they're trying to get everybody. And the only group that they could never unionize was the designers at GM. And they'd come in and tell us all these great things about how many days off you're going to get and all these benefits and everything. And we looked at these guys like we're crazy. Said, you know, you don't understand. We work here because we love doing it. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter how much they pay us. We're going to work here for nothing. And uh, uh, and the, the talent in that place was just incredible. You know, guys that were had been in the in the business for years. I mean, uh, Harley Earl, who was the head of design at that time, had been hired in in 1927. Wow! And uh, this was 1957. So you can imagine how long, and he was just getting ready to retire. And Bill Mitchell was had been his right hand man for several years. And Bill was going to take over, and uh, had a completely different philosophy on design and stuff. And as it so happens, in uh, the March of '57, uh, Zora had gone to work for him uh, a couple years earlier. Had uh, seen what they were doing with the early Corvettes and went to see him and said, you know. You guys have got a great idea here, but it's 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 not a real sports car, and nobody in Detroit really knew what a sports car was. I mean, these guys, their idea of, of an automobile is some sort of living room on wheels that you know you drive around in. <laughs> well, it was the Midwest. No, none of the roads yeah. had any curves. It was a long ways yeah. before the Cobra. <clears throat> but Harley Earlett had uh, because he was a car guy, even though here he is in his seventies. He'd gone to Watkins Glen and had, had heard about this sports car racing that was going on and uh, became enthralled with the whole idea and came back and, and made this fabulous dream car called the LeSabre and, and took it back to, to Watkins Glen one year. And, of course, that thing looked like a spaceship compared to anything that they were running. But that was his, his passion was automobiles. And... Uh, Zora went to, to Earl and said, you know, that's a fabulous car for the American market, but if you really want to do do something, you've got to do like the Europeans, and you've got to build a racing Corvette, and that will get the Corvette off the, off the, uh, <clears throat> off the ropes, because at that time they'd come out with it, of course, in, in uh, 53, and uh, uh, Ford had come out in late 54 with the T-Bird, and was just wiping them off the map. They were out selling Corvettes, you know, 10 to 1. And uh, so Zora talked uh, Earl into to building a real sports car. And uh, to make it really quick, we bought a 300 SL, took the body off it, uh, 
put one Ed Cole's new Chevrolet V8s in it and did an all-new body on the car. And it was designed by another young guy that had gone in there with 19 years old, too, a guy named Bob Cumberford. He got to do the car, and the car was finished by the time I got in there. But And that was a super, super secret project, and I'd heard about it, and they were going to run it down at Sebring in, uh, in March there of 57. So myself and a couple other guys, we grabbed our Corvettes, and we drove all the way, you know, left work uh, at uh, Thursday evening and, and drove around the clock all the way down to Sebring, Florida, and arrived there in time to see the, the prep on the cars because the, the race runs a 12-hour race from Saturday through Sunday and got to see that car show up. So I, I got to know people that were, you know, in the racing and the things with GM and got really pretty excited even more about working there because I got to know guys in Chevrolet engineering, got to know Zora. And uh, so at that time was uh, Earl was going to retire and Bill Mitchell was going to take over for him. Uh, GM uh, joined in with uh, Chrysler and Ford and what they call the AMA American automobile manufacturers association ban on performance because they thought the, uh, they were spending too much money, and they were spending it primarily on uh, stock car racing and drag racing and stuff. So they all agreed that they were all going to get out of the racing business. No more performance. They weren't going to write about it. It was the end of the whole thing. So it's part of the program was that since they could no longer build any more performance cars, the Corvette was going to be killed off completely. There were no more Corvettes. Yeah. yeah. So just at the time I'd come in and I wanted to work in the Chevy studio and design Corvettes and go racing, they killed off the program. Hmm. And uh, so I was really kind of, you know, really disappointed because I'd just seen the car run and then they turned around and said, okay, take that thing and uh, put it in the, in the crusher and uh, get rid of the car. Oh my God. And no, no more, no more Corvettes. So Zora being, as wise as he was, he took and he gave it to the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum and, get, and gifted it to him. And that's where the car resides today. So he saved that car. And then, of course, uh, Bill Mitchell took over uh, from Harley Earl. And uh, being a real guy with gasoline in his veins, he says, there's no way I'm going to get rid of the Corvette. This whole thing will blow over in a while. And in the meantime, uh, uh, I'm going to be responsible for building a new new Corvette. So the first concept car that he worked on was what we call the C2. It's the second generation of the Corvette, which eventually became the, the 63 split window. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this is still uh, 1957, understand. So he had gone over to the Turin show in Italy and had seen a bunch of really slick-looking cars over there that had a similar type theme with a crisp belt line all the way around them with a little aerodynamic shape over each tire. And uh, the main one was a car called the Disco Volante, which had been built by Alfa Romeo a year or two before. And it was a coupe. And one of the things that uh, uh, Mitchell knew that the market needed was a coupe for the American market because that was the way the uh, Thunderbird was being marketed and was successful. So he made up his mind that he was going to make a new Corvette coupe and came back, uh, took photographs of all these cars, 
Now, he could not take that project up to the Chevrolet studio and present it to them because top management that walked around the studios and looked at what was going on would have seen that there was a new sports car being designed there, (laughs) and he would have lost his job for going against top management. But uh, So he went downstairs to the advanced concept studio where I was working, which was basically a studio for the new intern guys, but uh, they, they put them in that studio to see how your, how your work goes. And uh, knew he could, he could do the car down there in secret because top management would <laughs> never go down to the advanced concept. So he walked in one day cold on, on the studio. He, I mean, here's the vice president of design walking in. We'd never talk to anybody that high in the thing. And he just said, guys, sit down. I want to talk to you. And... Uh, Here's what I want to do. And basically, he laid out the whole Corvette program. And of course, we're all looking at each other incredulous. Here's the vice president of design offering to have us design the new Corvette. And we're going, this has got to be a joke. He's probably doing that at every other studio and everything's secret. You don't know what's going on in all these other rooms. So we figured that he'd probably done this in several other studios. But it turned out that it really was secret. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, you know, he asked us to put up our best work and chose my work that was going in. I got to lead the project on it. And this is still 1957. So it took several years from the time that we started working on that thing until it finally went into production. But uh, from 57 through 59, we refined the car. And by that time, management had discovered that the... uh, project was going on downstairs they came down and looked at it and uh i guess you know they took him upstairs and talked to him very severely and said you know mr mitchell if you want to continue with this project you can do it on your own with your own money uh but you cannot put the corvette name on it and you cannot put the chevrolet name on it so uh, he agreed to that and uh came back down and said guys we can't do the coupe. I don't have enough money to do the whole thing, but we'll build it as a roadster. And uh, so that's what we did. We ended up building the car. It was called the XP87. It was the Corvette concept car. And uh, took it to its first race in Marlboro uh, in 1957. And, of course, when it showed up, it just absolutely wowed the, the press. It was just a sensation. It was on every magazine cover in the world. And press and the near the Corvette had returned, and it got such an incredible response, favorable, that uh, he was able to convince management that they should put the program back in uh, in gear, and he set up a special studio to continue it, and then he brought in two of his other famous designers that uh, had worked with him, and that was Larry Shinoda mm-hmm. and Tony Lakeem, and uh, so they they took the, the concept, the XP80, uh, 87 and they did all the lines for the production car so uh, I did the concept car they turned it into the production car and from the time I started on it when Bill Mitchell took all my design work on it uh, it was almost six years until the car was actually uh, delivered out to the public you had some thoughts on that XB87 Stingray Racer uh, did anybody bother to listen to what you had to say <laughs> Well, that car is, uh, they keep that around uh, the General Motors uh, styling as sort of an inspiration for all the new guys. And they 
sometimes have it in the hallway downstairs and sometimes put it in the studio for the guys upstairs. But it, it goes on the road a lot. It's become an icon of design for GM and uh, probably one of the best cars that, that Mitchell ever did. Of course, he did several great cars, you know, the Buick Rivieras. And, but uh, that, that Corvette really kicked it off for him and always was his favorite. So after they we finished running it a bit, then he took it home as his personal car and he drove it on the street every <laughs> cool. all the time, you know, and during the nice weather and stuff he drove it to work. And uh loved that car and it uh, it was known as Mitchell's Racer, not the X P eighty seven, it was Mitchell's Racer. <laughs> and uh, that's that was the whole story on the car. But you told them you told Bill Mitchell there should be a couple of changes made to the car. When you told him that, what did he say? Well, you know, you don't tell Mitchell what to do. <laughs> I mean, some brass. You know, if you're an intern designing, this guy's the vice president of design, and he likes everything you're doing. And I've got to say, Mitchell designed the car. I just did the lines for him the way he liked it. I'd put something up on the wall. He'd say, kid, that's great. Do that. Uh, don't do that. Change this. You know, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, if you look at the car, originally it had a single rear backlight on it, a rear window on it. And he came in one day and he uh, uh, told the modelers, the clay modeler guys are all in the union. So as a designer, I was not, I was not able to even touch the model. Anything that the model had to be done, this is a full-size clay, had to be done by the modeler. So anyway, he said, guys, I want you to take a knife and run a, a knife right down the center line of the back end there. And uh, I'm going to put a real nice thin line there and split that rear window out, you know. So, you know, we're all standing there. And then uh, he directed that. And he said, okay, now finish that all up like we'd make it in production, you know, with the chrome trim and everything on it or whatever. So that took, you know, a few days on it. And, you know, Zora would come over all the time and keep checking on what was going on. And, and of course, he walked in and he saw that and he says, I mean, you know, this big, thick Russian accent is, what is this? This is absolutely absurd. Who, who is responsible for all this, you know? Looking at all us designers, you know, you're going to try to have us fired. And, and we explained to him that uh, <laughs> Mr. Mitchell has requested that. Well, <laughs> we cannot do this. You know, this is absolutely stupid. You can't look out the back window and uh, we will fix this immediately. So by that time, you know, Mitchell had found out that he was down there, and they ended up with this giant screaming match, literally. Here's, the, you know, the top guy and the head of the Corvette program over at Chevrolet Engineering and, and the vice president of styling. And finally it came down, and Mitchell said, well, he says, I own this car personally, and I'm telling you to get out of the studio and don't come back, and I'm going to finish it the way I want <laughs> And and he literally kicked him out of styling. Oh. And, of course, he went back to Ed Cole, who was the, the vice president. Uh, he was the head of Chevrolet, vice president, and uh, explained what was going on and said, you know, we cannot do this. And, of course, he was highly respected by Cole. And so they had a, a meeting of the minds there and, uh, in the office and brought, him, brought it in. And Cole, you know, being the master politician of what he was, he said, you know, Bill, I know how important this is to you. 
So if you want it, we'll do it for one year, and then after that it gets changed over to a solid rear window is what happened. So that's why it only ended up in one year, and that became the iconic design for the car. And, of course, if you've got a 63 today, you know, they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars more than a, <laughs> than a regular 64 through 67 Stingray Coupe. Oh, absolutely. Uh, after a couple of years, uh, you left GM to go racing in Southern California, and you wound up working for Max's Hollywood Motors during the day and working on your race car at night. Can you tell us a little bit about working at Max's and what that was like? Again, you know, uh, I just had such fabulous luck in working with the great people in, in the automotive world. Uh, you know, I bought when I was in Detroit, the, the one of the reasons I'd, I'd gone to GM, you know, at that time you had to be 21 years old to get your driver's license for racing. So I'd gone back there, hired in at 19. So by the time I was just about getting to be 21, I, I wanted to have a race car. So I bought a, a basket case car that had, actually it was an excellent team car from Cooper. It belonged to a dentist in Detroit, and he'd run it into the ground and. And I bought it for super cheap and took it home and worked on it. And, and uh, about that time, uh, I figured I wanted to go back to California and start racing. So uh, that's when I left GM and I took the car and I went back. And uh, I I met uh, Max Belchowski at my very first race at Palm Springs. And he was real helpful and, and offered to say, uh, why don't you come over and work for me and chase parts during the day and I'll help you work with your car at night. And so that's what we did. I, I got to use Max's shop at, at night. I kept the car parked there and had all this genius stuff. I mean, he's the number one special builder in Southern California. And uh, he had a, this great sense of humor because the car was probably the ugliest looking car you'd ever seen in your life. <laughs> and, I, and it was brilliantly designed underneath, you know, but, but he put all this, you know, I mean, he built it literally out of junkyard parts. Uh, and he and his wife designed that car, but with a big V8 in it and lightweight, it was fast, it was well-designed, and uh, he became a real uh, hero of the blue-collar crowd at the races because he'd be there racing against all the high-buck guys with their Maseratis and Ferraris and, you know, half a dozen mechanics and 40-foot trailers and Max never owned a trailer he always drove the car out to the races raced it and drove it home and that's the way he, he ensured that the car was always ready to run it was reliable and uh he worked every weekend on it uh take it out to drag races and try something new try a new set of carburetors a new cam or whatever on it and just kept refining it and he did all of this on the street and uh, so i got to you know uh, hang out and learn how that old car was built. And uh, and that's actually where I met Shelby because in 1959, uh, Carol had won at Le Mans driving for Aston Martin. And he came back to California in 1959 and wanted to finish up uh, the season 59-60. Uh, he had a bad heart and knew he was going to have to quit. So he uh, looked at what had what was going on at that time and the fastest guy with an American car was Lance Revelo and the Scarabs. And uh, so that whole combination of a big American V8 and a lightweight chest, he was real appealing. 
And of course, uh, without any money at all, uh, Carol was able to, you know, kind of swing a deal with Max to, to drive the car in several races and did quite well with it. And, uh, realized that that was really the direction that he wanted to do was to find this lightweight American V8 engine, put it in a super lightweight chassis. And, and uh, that's what eventually morphed into the Cobra. He found out that the BAC factory in England uh, was going to be without an engine. They were building uh, uh, Bristol engines uh, based on the BMW and the BMW took the design back and they didn't have an engine. So, they had a chassis with no engine, and Ford was just going to introduce the new lightweight V8s. Uh, at that time, it was only a 221-cubic-inch engine. They were going to put it in the pickup truck up in Canada. And uh, so he went back to Ford and, and uh, talked Lee Iacocca into the deal. And Iacocca gave him about twenty-five grand, a couple of engines, and, and uh, said, you know, it's the cheapest deal they ever made because they could build something that was going to be fast and maybe compete against the Corvette. And then Carroll took that over to England and told, of course, he had Ford Motor Company and millions of dollars behind him and taught them <laughs> and to give him a chassis. <laughs> I mean, the guy was just magic, at, you know, being able to create stuff. And uh, that whole project put together became the whole Cobra program. And me being his first employee, you know, the first thing I did was run his driving school for him until that thing opened up and then it, it became larger and larger. And then with all my uh, art school background and stuff, I just basically cre created the image for Carol, you know, with all the new, you know, whether it was business cards or t-shirts or stationery or paint schemes on the car or advertising or, you know, anything, I was doing that until uh, the opportunity came up that he decided he wanted to go to Europe. And, and he knew that the uh, the Cobra Roadster wasn't going to be fast enough in Europe. And I explained to him, you know, that uh, physics is, is is what really determines how fast the car is going to be. And that if we put a new body on it, which was allowed under the rules at that time, if you kept the chassis exactly the same, put a new body on it, it was still a legal production car. And uh, so I did design the Daytona, and it was all based on the cars that uh, had been designed clear back in 1937 by the Germans. But it was such a strange-looking thing with a chopped-off tail and stuff. Nobody ever had any, uh, any uh, uh, confidence in that idea. So it was a pretty hard sell. And I you know, explained the whole thing to Carol. At first, he got pretty excited about it. And he says, well, you know, what you have to do is, you know, I want you to make a presentation to the guys in the shop, especially our chief engineer, Phil Rennington and uh, see what they think about it. And if they all agree that it's a great idea, we can do it. And I said, great. So I you know, made up a presentation with you know, four view drawings and stuff and made a presentation to the shop, and it was like crickets. I mean, they, <laughs> I mean, they, they just got up and walked off. You know, they oh. just thought it was absolutely crazy. And uh, so... Carol said, that, well, I guess that's not going to work. And the only guy that saved the program was that Ken Miles walked over to Carol and said, you know, the kid knows what he's doing, and he says it's not going to cost us anything at all to let him draw the thing up full size, and we'll make up a, a, a plastic or uh, a full-size scale in, in plywood, which becomes the book to make the aluminum body. 
So uh, Ken Miles and myself and the young kid that had come in from New Zealand named John Olson to work on the thing. The three of us uh, built that book. And uh, by that time, you know, once the guys began to see it in the shop in full size, you know, a couple of guys came over and said, you know, we'll help you in the evening on our own time. You know, they don't have to pay us. And they became part of the team as well. So about five of us ended up building this car in about 90 days. Oh, and, good uh, Lord. Of yeah. course, we took it out to Riverside on February 1st. I remember the date, 1964. Ken came out, and I mean, he didn't even run more than 10 or 12 laps, and he'd broken the lap record by three and a half seconds. I mean, we hadn't even changed the <laughs> chassis or changed the tire pressures. And right he just said, box. this damn thing is so fast. So he immediately went to the phone and called Carol and said, I'm, I'm going to head back to the shop. You guys bring it back. We need to make a few changes on it. Uh, he says, we don't have enough traction at the back end on it, so we've got to get some bigger tires. And now Carol is the distributor for Goodyear Tires. So when they got back, uh, he called uh, Ted Lobinger at uh, Goodyear and uh, said, this is what we need in this size tire and stuff. And can you have those made for us? We want to run the car at Daytona. And Lovinger says, you know, you know, how long it takes to design all the tooling and make new tires and stuff. There's no way that we can do that for you. But he says, we just happened to have finished a new front tire for these stock cars, and it's about the same diameter, but it's quite a bit wider. So, uh, and uh, Carol said, send them out. So that night they put them on a plane, flew them out, and we fitted them on the back of the car. And of course, that they. They were wider. They stuck out about an inch and a half on either side. So we had to, you know, we didn't have time to change the body or anything. We just made up a new aluminum panel and riveted it on there. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the way we took it to Daytona. So, I mean, it was all done for absolutely no money at all. We never would have gotten it built if Goodyear hadn't put up the money to, to do it. Uh, they paid to have the body panels made down at Calametal Shape. And uh, the regular guys on the shop that, were, helped build the car, became the became the crew on it, and uh, we took it to uh, Daytona. And then the really strange thing was is that Carol, you know, we built this thing around Ken because Ken was the guy who was behind the whole project, and we built it around him completely. It was just like a custom-made suit. And uh, Carol, for some reason, just said, you know, I don't want you to drive the car, Ken. And... Uh, he said, I'm going to put Bob Holbert and Dave McDonald in the car. And they'd never driven the car. The only guy that had ever driven it was Ken. So anyway, we got down to, to uh, and I can't tell you, that created such a major problem. I mean, Ken almost quit. Mm. But anyway, we got down to Daytona. And uh, so uh, they put uh, Bob Holbert in the car to begin with. He was our top uh, team driver from the East Coast. And uh, Bob went out. And he ran a couple laps and came back and he said, you know, this is, this car is so fast. He says, I'm just walking away from the Ferraris. He said, you know, why don't we cut the RPM limit down on, you know, the five or 700 RPM and, uh, you know, that'll make the engine more reliable and uh, make sure that we end up finishing. So they did, they cut the RPM down, I think 500 RPM. And he went out again. He was still faster than the Ferraris. <laughs> I mean, these are the, the new GTO Ferraris with Pedro Rodriguez and the full factory team there. 
and he's smoking them. So uh, they, they brought it back in, and we cut it down, you know, 700,000 RPM. And at that point, now the car is about the same speed as the Ferraris. So at that point, we did a fuel check on it, and we were the body was so efficient, it was 25% more efficient in a fuel use compared to the Roadsters that we'd been racing, you know, for a couple of years. So that was our, our plan. I said, all we got to do is go out there and, stay with the Ferraris and when they pit, you know, we'll be able to make another two laps and that's the way we'll win the race. We can win, you know, every time they pit, we'll make two laps on them. And that was the plan. So by the middle of the evening, we were, I think we were seven or 10 laps in front of the Ferraris and just cruising. (laughs) And, uh, so, uh, unfortunately we ended up with a, a fire in the pits, which is a whole story in itself, which I won't tell you right now, but it's a major screw up. Uh-huh. And uh, so it, it, with with that fire, uh, Carol was absolutely furious with the, you know, what had happened. And he told the guys that, you know, just pack it up. We're going home. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to stay here. And, uh, and they're going, Carol, it doesn't matter. We can, we can fix all the burn. We can change the rear end on it. The reason that the, thing had caught fire is that uh, the differential had got hot and it was leaking some grease out. And Bob, of course, had smelled that and come in and said, you know, there's all kinds of smoke in the cockpit. And the guys knew what it was because we've had a problem with the differentials before blowing the seals out. And uh, so uh, they actually uh, John Olson had crawled underneath the car to you know, drain the oil up so we could pull the differential on it. That thing, the thing caught fire. And, and uh, so if, if uh, we hadn't had the guy with a fire extinguisher there, they just filled it up with 35 gallons of fuel. It would have blown sky high, but he managed to get the fire out. It, it burned John pretty well. And uh, but anyway, we, we didn't finish the race. And at that point, uh, Charlie Agapu or our other crew chief and the guy said, Carol, it doesn't matter. We're, we're set. We're seven, I think seven to 10 laps to lead. He said, by the time they catch up to us, you know, we'll have that new diff in it. We'll have the wiring fixed on it. We can go on and finish the race. And Carol wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have it. You know, he was just so angry about the whole thing. So we mm. didn't finish that race. And consequently we did not get any points. If we had, fix the car, even if we'd gone out, we could have won the race anyway, but even if we finished third place, we would have gotten enough points that by the end of the season, we still would have had the points to win the championship. So by canceling that race, making that decision at that time, we lost the world championship on the first race. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Holy cow. Now that Venice crew that you were working with during the Cobra years there, was a truly yeah, amazing unique, group of guys. Truly unique group of individuals. Could you tell us a little bit about working with them and uh, what the guys were like? Well, the thing was, they were the, the the most talented group of guys. They're all California, uh, either guys that are hot rod builders out of the lakes, you know, or drag racing. Uh, their whole goal, of course, was to go to Indianapolis. That's the whole thing that American racing was focused on and had been for 60 years and uh, they were almost embarrassed to tell any any of their peers in the in the racing community that they were working on sporty cars because 
<laughs> Nobody had any respect for these sporty cars. But by the time uh, by 63 rolled around and, and we won the United States Road Racing Championship against Corvette, the guys really began to take a lot of pride in what they had there. But um, these guys were absolutely the, the finest fabricators and the greatest bunch of guys to work with uh, that loved their work and took such pride in it. And it was you know, just an honor to be around him and watch him work. And, of course, the guy that was leading them all was Phil Remington, who is still today, you know, considered probably the greatest engineer fabricator that we ever had in Southern California. You know, he built all the scarabs and just every other fast car that ever was built over at Dan Gurney's. You know, that was all built by Phil, Phil Remington, who, who went over to Dan's after we uh, finished up at Shelby's. So... It was just a chance to work with one of the best, fastest guys in the world. And, uh, you know, if, if they did it, it was going to work. And uh, so that was that's how it came about. They all thought the car was crazy when, when we first built it, but we went out and it was fast right out of the box. And uh, even with the fire, you know, the, it just fired everybody up. So we ended up doing five more. The problem was that we had such a small group of people in the shop at that time um, that uh, there was nobody to build the rest of these cars. So uh, Carol called up Alessandro Di Tommaso and Modena and uh, said, you have a shop over there that can build the bodies for them. We'll finish the chassis up here, and then we'll fly them over and do the bodies. So that's what ended. We ended up doing five more bodies, and all of those were built in, in Modena. So I got a chance to go over to Italy and, and work in Italy and watch how the Italians build cars. I'm sure much to the chagrin of Enzo Ferrari, who was also based in the same town. <laughs> Who's this young guy? Come over, toy, show me how to how to race. Hey, pasta fazula. <laughs> well, it, it was really created kind of a major, major problem in the shop because, of course, the Italians were all very much in favor of Ferrari. Was probably the second most important person in Italy behind the Pope. And uh, <laughs> uh, if any shop, you know, was working for Maserati or Lamborghini that was coming along, they sort of became uh, an enemy of, of the Ferrari fans. So the fact that these Americans were over there having a car built, uh, they all sort of laughed at it because, of, you know, this motor was a production motor out of a sedan they didn't keep, think much of, much of it at all until of course it started racing but uh it it put the shop that we were working on Colossa Rio Grande Sport kind of put them on the outside of society there because they had gone against uh you know the, the establishment uh, of Ferrari but uh it created lots of work and, and again working with Italians was just fabulous these guys were again passionate and great workers and they did it with nothing i mean i can't believe you i can't tell you how crude the tools were you know i was so used to working with these guys in california that had all the latest stuff to work with and i got over to italy and these guys are working with stuff that had been made in the middle ages you know <laughs> and yet all of the stuff came out i mean it was just every bit of it was handcrafted it was beautifully built you know we built stuff in california it was all built on power hammers and and formed out these guys did it all by hand Whoa. and it was uh, amazing it was like watching uh, you know they, they every piece was only about you know two or three feet square 
and they just made all these different pieces and then they put it together like a quilt and then smoothed it all out. And, uh, I mean, they, they're artisans, you know, that they weren't just, Mm -hmm. they weren't fabricators. These guys are truly artisans. And that's why Italian cars are so beautiful because they just, they work and build them all with their hands. Unbelievable. So, when you left Shelby, you went to start your own design firm and racing team. Uh, what did that involve? What did you do? Uh, just give us a sketch of what you were doing. Well, the, the thing was, is that um, if you go back to that particular era of uh, when I started working, um, I actually started working for the Japanese when I was working for Carroll, um, there was um, a program going on at, at that time. I don't know if you remember a guy that was building a, a car called the Shadow, Can-Am car, the Shadow. Okay, sure. And uh, so uh, he had been working in, in Japan and uh, wanted to build a, a, a Daytona-type speedway with Toyota in Japan. So he got to know Bill France pretty well and he would go from Japan clear down to Daytona to meet on this and back and forth. And every time of course he'd stop in Los Angeles and, and stick his head in the door and talk to Carol and see what was going on with us. He was a guy that kind of knew everything about racing from all over the world, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so, uh, there was another guy that he had a friend that was in the, in Japan, another American guy that was there, a um, guy named Bob Dunham. And, you know, he was just kind of living uh, as an American in, in Japan by teaching English and also working in Japanese movies when they needed a, a gaijin guy, uh, a, a white guy in, in the movie. He, he was uh, a guy, an actor, and sort of, so he got into the racing stuff, and, and the whole Japanese automotive structures, each manufacturer runs in a different class because you can't, if, if you lose a race to another factory, it's a major loss of face. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, you know, cultural thing that you cannot lose in Japan. You can race against privateers and beat them. So each manufacturer raced in a different class and they'd sell cars to all the privateers and they would have races over there. And of course the factories would always win. So everybody was happy, but one factory would never race against another factory. That was uh, not done. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I began working for a, a, a company that was at the bottom of the pecking order. And this was Hino because they were primarily a builder of trucks and buses. <laughs> but they wanted, there was a, a group of guys in the factory enthusiasts that wanted to build a really good quality car. Their dream was to build something like a Porsche someday because they building trucks and buses that was very high quality. That's the thing they really understood. So the only thing that they had at that time was a, a license to build on a Renault R4, which is a, you know, funny little French sedan, you know, with a, with an iron motor in the back with swing axles, and, you know, worse handling than a Volkswagen was at the time. But that's all that, that they were building with, you know. And these guys are all engineers, but they're 
they don't know any practical hot rotting tricks or anything. Understand that you know that if you want to raise compression or change cams or whatever on that kind of stuff, they have to go through a whole business procedure to design it. And, you know, it's just not done like it's done in Southern California. So uh, Don told uh, Bob, he says, you know, if you want to make that thing run, he says, why don't you take it over to California and see Pete at Shelby's and he can fix that thing up for you and you can run it in California and get the car running and then bring it back here to Japan. You'll be, you know, pretty fast. So that's what it worked out. Uh, Bob Dunham uh, brought the car over to California and we made a deal that I'd uh, prepare the car for him and he'd race it uh, for a year and then uh, uh, he would go back to Japan and he'd leave the car there and he'd get another car and bring it back. And uh, so I ended up with the car and at that time in the United States there was no sedan racing. The Sports Car Club of America did not permit any sedans to run. However, there was a guy that with... uh, Sports Hour Illustrated, a guy named uh, W.R.C. Shetnell, he was the, uh, the engineering editor. And uh, he realized that there was a bunch of guys in Southern California that had all these little Mini Coopers and Lotus Cortinas and Sobs and all kinds of stuff. They all wanted to go racing. So he went down to the local region uh, of the Sports Car Club of America, and of course they told him, no, we don't race sedans or whatever. But there was another club in Southern California called the California Sports Car Club that was independent, and they were running their own races, and they were paying drivers, which was you know not done in those days. But anyway, he went to the, the guys on the board. Ken Miles was on the board and said, "Look, I've got you know 15 guys that will, would love to run sedans. I'll bring these guys out, and we'll have a class for them. Can you do that?" And they said, "Sure." So that's the way that sedan racing started in. Uh, in the United States is with the Cal Club because FCCA wouldn't permit it. And it just so happened that uh, it, uh, the, the biggest race in the world at that time, money-wise, was the Los Angeles Times Mirror Grand Prix. And uh, so we, they would get huge crowds out there. And uh, so they wanted to have an opening event. So they couldn't go to the California Sports Car Club. So they came to the Cal Club and said, why don't you guys bring a bunch of sedans out there and we'll put on a hundred mile race for little sedans as an opening event, uh, before the Grand Prix. So they did that. And, uh, so we had this big field of, uh, of small foreign sedans out there. And of course I had these funny little Hino cars and, uh, I built a couple of hot rod motors and we ended up bringing the race one, two. And at that point, uh, it was a major, major coup because Japanese cars had never raced in the United States and much less won anything. And here we'd run this race in front of, you know, 80, 100,000 people. And it was just a huge, huge event. So it was publicized in Japan, you know, that these Hino cars had won the uh, Riverside Grand Prix. And, you know, it was just an amazing uh, publicity coup for Hino and put them on the map. And, uh, sort of gave me an entree into Japan. And uh, so when I went back to the factory, they were, you know, super, super pleased with everything I'd done. So they offered me the distribution of all the lines in the cars in the United States. 
I wow, get to design wow. the cars. I get to run the factory team. I mean, I, I thought I died and gone to heaven. I was everything good that could possibly happen. And then about uh, two weeks before we did the final contract, uh, the uh, chairman of the board uh, died of a heart attack. <laughs> and the oh, whole project no. stopped. Oh, my God. And that was the end of it. Oh, no. Yeah, so it went to zero. After Hino, you wind up racing Datsun and Nissan cars, first with the 240Z and then with the 510. And Corey is a huge 510 fan. So when you get to that part, go real slow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's kind of an odd, strange thing that happened because uh, by then I'd... uh, and I'd, I'd left Shelby's and I was building this race team for the you know. And uh, at that time, Toyota decided that they were going to come out with a new sports car called the 2000 GT. And the other thing that went on is, is that, that uh, Toyota, the only cars that they could, only vehicles that they could sell in the United States, because at that time, everything out of Japan was pretty much junk cars. And whether it was Datsuns or whether it was... Uh, Toyotas or whatever, they were all sort of bad copies of European design that they'd bought the license to copy them in Japan, mm-hmm. and they were not very good. So the only thing that was really selling for Toyota in the United States was pickup trucks, and they could sell them to every Japanese gardener they, they could find. <laughs> so uh, uh, they wanted to build more pickup trucks, so they owned 15% of Hino, so they ended up making a hostile takeover. They went around, bought all of the stock, and took over Hino and cut off all the entire car racing program to build pickup trucks. And, of course, uh, they came over to my shop to see what I was doing, and they were impressed with it. So they had offered me the the contract to run the 2000 GTs. And I said, okay, if we do that. So uh, I signed the contract to do that, and they promised to send the cars over. So at the same time, uh, Ford had just cut off their racing program with uh, with all of their teams, and of course that included Shelby. So Shelby's sitting with this huge operation there at LAX Airport, and uh, with nothing coming on. So he went to his accountant and said, "Barry, what are we going to do? We got this huge shop and no racing." And Barry says, "Buy a Toyota dealership." And, and Carol didn't know anything about owning a dealership or anything. He says, is that a good thing? And, and Barry, of course, knew what was going on. He says, the smartest thing you can do is buy a Toyota dealership. So he said, well, fine, go down to 190th Street and uh, buy one, and we'll build a place here in, in El Segundo and, and uh, sell Toyotas and service them out of the south. So Barry went down there and told him that, you know, what was going on. And, of course, Shelby at that time was at his at the peak of his career, he just won Le Mans. Uh, he was all over the press. I mean, he was the number one name in American racing, sports car racing. And here was this opportunity to work with Shelby. So uh, Toyota looked at the contract they signed with me and, and uh, looked at Carol. And Carol, of course, said, do you want to go racing? And they said, well, we just signed a contract with, with Pete Brock. And he says, well... You know, he's just a guy that used to change tires for me. And, uh, <laughs> oh, so, uh, oh man. Course, you know, they didn't know any better. I mean, here's the guy just won Le Mans. He's the number one guy. So are they going to go with this guy that they thought was pretty good, you know, and 
had had worked with the Japanese for three years and had a good reputation. Uh, so they made the decision to go with Shelby. So I'd gone out and hawked myself to the eyeball. I bought a new infrared dyno, set up the shop, and got all set, you know, for these cars to, sh- to show up, and they didn't come. And then the money didn't come either, you know, and I'm, God, I'm really getting stressed on what's going on because, and they're saying, well, you know, we're having some problems, you know, they're going to be delayed or whatever. They wouldn't tell me what was going on. And finally, one of the guys over at Shelby called, you know, because I'd worked there and we were friends. He said, you know, you're not going to get these Toyota 2000 GTs. And I said, of course I am. I've got a contract right here signed. You know, I'm supposed to have the cars on this such and such a date and, and whatever. He says, you're not getting the cars. They're here and we're building them to go racing. And mm. I got finally, you know, the penny dropped. I figured out what was going on. So I said, okay, who's Toyota's biggest competitor? <laughs> so it's Dotson. <laughs> so I, I got in my car and I, I drove straight over to Gardein. I didn't know a soul. Walked in the door and, you know, talked to the lady at the front desk. And I said, is there anybody here that's involved with, you know, a racing program or anything like that? She says, I don't think so. We don't, we don't do any racing or anything. And I said is there anybody that even knows anything about it? And they said, well, you know, we've got, we help some dealers out occasionally, but uh, that's about all. I said, well, who's the guy? So she said, well, it's a guy named Lee Wiley. So I said, that's the guy I want to see. Anyway, she made an arrangement for me to go see Lee Wiley. And, and I sat down and told him the whole program of what I wanted to do. And I said, I'd need a couple of your cars. Not, I'm going to go blow Shelby's, you know, new Toyotas off. And, you know, he just thought I was out of, out of my mind. He said, you know, you know, our cars aren't any good. We can't do that. And, uh, and I said, you don't understand. I said, anything can be a race car if you know how to build it. And uh, and what I didn't know, of course, at the time is that he did have a budget to do racing, but it was going to his son-in-law who owned the dealership. Oh. So obviously he told me no. So then I got kicked out of his office, and then I went back out and I said, who handles your advertising and promotion, whatever. So introduced me to another guy, and I went up and I said, I want to talk to the president, you know, of, of the company. Oh, well, we can't do that. Uh, that, uh, you know, very high end. It's only people up in the industry. And I said, well, here's what I want to do. So he listened to my story, and he said, that's absolutely crazy. We don't want to have anything to do with that. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> so they... <laughs> so they they told me basically to go, you know, pound sand. So I went back and got on the phone and I called Mr. Miyako, who was the guy that I'd worked with at Hino. He was the guy uh, that was in charge of all the money at Hino. And uh, I explained the whole situation to him. And I said, you know, I'm really in a, in a, in a bind on this thing. And uh, uh, Toyota screwed me over. People at Dodson won't talk to me. Uh, have you got anybody else in Japan that might be interested in going racing? And he says, well, you know, we've been friends for three years. You've been a great guy for us. Uh, give me a couple of days. I've got, uh, I've got some friends in the Nissan Motor Corporation, and I will go over there and explain the situation to them. So he calls back in a couple of days and says, okay, it's all set. Uh, you got the money coming, and the cars will be at the dealership and go down and pick them up. <laughs> Holy cow. What do you mean? How did you do that? 
he says, well, he says, uh, you know, a guy that I know I went to school with uh, is the chairman of the board of Nissan Motor Corporation. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I told him what you needed, and he said, you know, that's just a drop in the bucket for him. So uh, they they made the contract with me, sent me the cars, the whole thing, said you can do whatever you want, it's on your own. And uh, so we did nice. it. So nice. we built the whole cars up in secret, you know, getting ready for the first race of the season. And of course, we showed up at tech inspection, and Shelby had been building all his cars in secret as well. And sort of the word had got out to the press that uh, Shelby was going to be there with these new cars at, at tech. And so there's all this intrigue going on. And then we roll in, and <laughs> of course, the, 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 the dealer, the dealer, the son in law dealer is there with his program. And we show up with these really trick-looking cars, and he's asking the guy at Nissan, he's going, how come these guys have racing cars that are, look better than mine? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, we don't know. Well, how did They had no idea that I'd gone over their head and worked this thing out in Japan. So they were, <laughs> you know, kind of pissed off that I'd gone over their head and whatever and wouldn't talk to me at all. And uh, so then we went racing, and of course we won the Pacific Coast Division Championship nice. the first year, and blew off the Toyotas, <laughs> and, and blew Shelby out of the water so he couldn't go to the Nationals. Oh. And uh, and at that point, of course, uh, I got a phone call from uh, from Mr. Uh, Kaiyama's personal secretary, and she said, you know, Mr. Kaiyama would like to meet you, and would you please come down and, and meet us? So I went down there. And of course, these guys that had, you know, shuffled me off now were very, very gracious. You know, <laughs> I was going to been invited directly to, to the president's office. So everything was reversed. And, uh, and I walked in there, and of course, you know, Mr. Kadayama could not have been a nicer guy. I just one of the most fabulous guys I'd ever worked with. And so he, you know, congratulated us, told us what he wanted to do and wanted me to run the new factory team and rolled out the pictures of the new 240Z and said, this is oh, what we're going to have for you. Oh, hello. So that's, that's the way the whole thing started. Oh, that's so cool. If you know, if you're going to write a movie script, you couldn't write a better one, you know, because <laughs> you're up and you're down, you're up and a down and, uh, and all friends and great people to work with. Pete, there's, You've done so much stuff and yep. had your hands in so many things. And there's so much more yep. to, to cover, uh, you know, building hang gliders and <laughs> a, a, a little, a, a little yeah. rocket box of a VW van that I really want to talk to you about. Oh yeah. Right. And <laughs> the arrow vault. And you've been a photographer and an auto journalist for decades. And, uh, you've written a, a bunch of books and you've got a, a, a new <laughs> modern Daytona coupe that you built for yourself. And there, there's so much stuff we want to talk to you about. I wonder if I could talk you into coming back and discussing more of the cool stuff you've done. And All right, we'll do that. there's so much. Now I do have one final question that I ask of everybody and okay. uh it's it's the the question that usually gets us the best answer and the most colorful answer what's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car oh jeez 
Uh, <laughs> I guess I couldn't print that, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it at 180 miles an hour. There's <laughs> <laughs> that, that some great adventures in cars that are, you know, not for publication. Well, Pete, thank you so much for being with us, and we're dying to have you back. Like I said, there's right. so much more to discuss. My God, when did you sleep? You sure seem to stuff everything in that you possibly could. It's been a lot of fun, I'll tell you. Leaving, leaving college and uh, deciding not to do the professional thing. Never made a lot of money, but I got to do all the things that people that made a lot of money always wanted to do. I, I looked at that, you know, about the guys going racing and stuff that were working their shop and racing. I said, these guys are having more fun and it's a, it's a greater pleasure in life to do what you want to do, your dreams, rather than making a lot of money and having later in life to be able to buy that. And I said, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Why not do it at the age you can do it and enjoy it? And that's what I've done. Uh, well, we are all hugely envious. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think I can say that unreservedly. And we're thrilled that you took the time to be with us here tonight. We'd love it if you'd come back and talk about all the other cool stuff you've done. And my God, what a list. Uh, all right. Pete, we'll thank you that. so very much. We've been speaking with legendary with the legendary Peter Brock about his exceptional history and life with cars. You can find all of the social media lot links for Mr. Brock on readthedriven.com. Pete, it's been an honor. Thank you so very much for taking the hey, time man, to be with us. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Take care. I, I hate had it I hated having to cover cut him off. There's so Oh, there's so much, much more. More wow. stuff. He's done so much cool stuff. This guy it's, at, it's that's gonna be a hard one to top. You know, uh Dos Equis missed the boat when they were looking for the most interesting man <laughs> in the world. It should have been Pete Brock. I don't man. always go 187 miles an hour, but when I do, <laughs> but, but it's when in the I car do. I design. <laughs> so awesome. very cool. That That's is crazy. uh, uh Man, I'm I'm honored to have just had him here. I could listen to him all night long. Oh yeah. That was extraordinary. Thank you so very much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do. We wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our listeners. You can find us online at DrivenRadioShow.com and ReadTheDriven.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at DrivenRadioShow.com or at DrivenRadioShow. And listen on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, Audible, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Corey Pratt. Yes. Catfish Groves. And Mr. Vern Estes. Yo. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you here next time on Driven Radio. Yeah.